welcome to the Bio Breakdown Podcast. On this podcast, we break down interviews with researchers, authors, and professionals in order to make them more digestible and accessible to everyday people. I'm your host, Chris Banity. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Randall. Hello, guys. And my producer, Max. Hello. This week, we're speaking uh, with a good friend of mine. Again, I have, I have lots of friends. You might be picking it up by this time. That was a joke. Uh, Sam Tagge, who studied chameleon communication. So, Sam, could you please uh, introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Sam. Okay. Well, that was a uh, man of few words. All right. Interview is over. <laughs> uh, no. So, Sam, could you kind of... Uh, Tell us when you first became interested in science and biology. We kind of run through the same rigmarole with all of our guests to kind of spread the message that, you know, science is for everybody and there's different paths through life you can take if you, you know, are take or, you know, have that passion for science. Uh, so when were you first interested in science and biology? So I don't really know exactly when it really it clicked for me. Actually, I think I might know this specific moment, but leading up to that moment, I didn't really know exactly what I want to do. All I knew is that I liked to be outside and I liked to be playing with animals. So when my family went on vacation, we usually went to Myrtle Beach and stayed on the beach for a week. And then we'd go to Gatlinburg and hike in the mountains and go creaking. And so I spent a lot of time catching fish, picking up snails, playing with hermit crabs, um, doing a lot of stuff in the ocean, and then when we'd get to Gatlinburg, I'd go and try to catch as many salamander, salamanders as possible. And so I think that really laid the foundation for, like, specifically wanting to do something working with animals. Um, but as I got a little bit older, uh, specifically in high school, I sort of went through this list of things that I wanted to do. First, I wanted to be a international businessman because I wanted to nod to how i met your mother but uh an international businessman because i wanted to travel and then i was like well i guess that's kind of cool but that would be kind of a boring life you're always traveling you don't do that like hang out with people a lot yeah. and then i really like to cook so i went through a phase where like, i wanted to be a chef and it's like very meticulous like you have certain ingredients you put them in things that sort of spoke to my uh type a personality in a way <laughs> yeah that's so kind of like, like science as well yeah, so it's like a, it, cooking is definitely baking more so than cooking because you can get away with a little bit in cooking, but baking specifically is very sciencey. Oh yes. Um, so that that kind of led me down the road. Maybe I want to do something like that. And then my mom's a nurse, and I kind of wanted to help people too. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do nursing. It's like a combination of science. You got to be a little meticulous, but also you get to like be around people, talk to them, and help people out. And so my first year in college, I went to a community college. Because I wasn't quite sure if that's exactly what I wanted to do, and so I was a, a nursing major for a year, and in that year, I absolutely hated it. It was horrible. <laughs> I didn't like wiping people's butts. I didn't anything about it. Those people are wonderful that are nursing. My mom's a nurse, one of the most awesome human beings I know, but it's I just job. couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. They make you do that in your first year nursing? <laughs> at community yeah, we college, had, no less, dude. <laughs> yeah, we had an internship at... Uh, um, Oh, what was it? A nursing home, for lack of a better term. And yeah. They used different words, but it was essentially a nursing home. And the first thing we had to do is we had to go sit down and meet somebody. And so my first experience was with this guy. His name was George. I talked to him for like five minutes. He told me that his sister and his nephew and his 
wife came to see him that day mm-hmm. and then he like didn't talk anymore and I walked out in the hall and we had to tell her teacher exactly what happened and she said oh that's kind of crazy because they passed away five years ago oh, like I can't do this I would I can't do this <laughs> yeah. it's not me and yeah. then the next lady was like 500 pounds and I had to like roll her over and like wipe her and it was just back-to-back terrible experiences and I couldn't do it yeah I and couldn't imagine that being their career no shame in <laughs> that like uh, no mom, shame yeah. people do that and props to everyone that it. does that yeah. can't do that my mom's a nurse too like a, lo- a lot of people in my family are in the medical professions and like I can't I, I can't do it. kind of a weird thing about me I guess like I've always had an aversion to, to medical stuff I can watch war movies or even actual like war footage and see people blown to bits doesn't phase me at all but like surgeries no thank you needles any needles no I don't do needles man no no thank you and just like to be able to do that is like it's a it's a courageous thing so, yeah it is I can't do it so so you made it past your uh, did you make it through a full year of nursing school yeah I did make it full, through a full year of nursing school and then I went on vacation again to Myrtle Beach and Gatlinburg and while we were in Myrtle Beach we went sea kayaking for the first time and this was sort of like the moment and experience that was like yes I want to do this so we went out and I'm on my kayak. I'm just sort of like paddling along, sun's shining, everything tastes great. And all of a sudden, I see this like probably four foot long blackfin shark, black tip shark, swim like right up next to my kayak, probably two feet below the water. And I was like, oh, that's a shark. Hey. And I told my family, like, hey guys, watch out, there's sharks in the water. And then I look behind them, and these fins start popping up out of the water. And so it's sort of surreal at this moment. I'm like, wow, they're. What is that? And then I realized that that's dolphins. And then I'm like, guys, look, they're dolphins. They turn around and they pop up in front of them. And then I'm in front of them and they're like jumping by me. And I start paddling with the dolphins. They're like jumping over top of me, going over and over. It was just a very surreal experience. I was like, you know what? I think I might want to be a a conservation biologist. That's something that I think I could do. And so I got back from vacation and I applied to my undergrad at Mount St. Joseph University and biology and the rest is really history <laughs> that's awesome man i i don't think a lot of people can point to you know i mean you did have like cascading events and perspectives that led you to one focal point but a lot of people can't point to one moment that influenced their life in such a way that it like set yeah. the course for their whole career that sounds like a pretty awesome moment was that the moment that you were uh, mentioning a few minutes ago yeah yeah that was that was it that was that was when I decided, like, you know what, this is this is what I want to do. I want to be a biologist. And, and, and my path is still sort of, like, weaved and gone in and out because I don't really know exactly what I want to do yet, but yeah. I know I want to be a biologist right at that on. point. Right on. Yeah. Right on. So when you got to college and you started down the biology track, uh, I'm sure you sought out kind of research opportunities, correct? Oh yeah, anything that I could get my hands on. I I um, actually contacted the department head after my first biology class because I was just so enthralled with <laughs> with him because he was so fascinating, and then the material was extremely engaging and interesting. And so I was like, hey, is there anything that I can do? And so he he was like, yeah. Tomorrow at like three o'clock, we're driving across the state to go pick up some or to canvas for some cicadas that may be coming out, and it would be a new species of thirteen-year cicadas that nobody's ever described before. And I said, 
all right, sign me up. I'll be there. <laughs> and so the next day we hopped in the car and drove an hour or two across Ohio and collected some cicadas. I'm starting to see where, where the overachiever uh, in you comes from. <laughs> After one class, he goes to the head of the department and I was like, hey, uh, I'm on your team now. What are yeah. you <laughs> I'm just driving your car with you, yeah. wherever you're going. That's wherever. awesome, man. And <sighs> cicadas can be uh, can be pretty annoying. I remember like, <laughs> they're just very loud, and they're when they when they hatch when yeah. the when the years like all come together. Like, oh, the, the seven year, the thirteen year. I was mowing lawns that summer in St. Louis when when the convergence was it the it's like the fourteen yeah. and the seventeen years. There's like all, there's like three years of overlap. Yeah. I swear. And so it was Taggy knows. <laughs> I really, I, 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 or Sam knows. I really don't like when things fly at my face. Oh, like, no. oh. <laughs> and so cicadas have that predator satiation technique where i mean that's kind of their life strategy right all they have mass emergence predators can't eat them all but they also have like a secondary technique where they just like sacrifice themselves basically fly at the predator because if the predator becomes full i can't eat any more of them so i'm sitting there with a lawnmower just minding my own business and then just emerging from the trees like pouring down at me as i had a hat in one hand and the mower in the other and i was batting them out of the air in front of the lawnmower Man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That year, my my parents rented goats to mow the lawn. It was that bad. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> nah, that was actually a lie. But <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I, I don't remember been... seeing that up the block. I don't know. But <laughs> That would have been awesome, though. It, yeah, yeah. it would have been a good idea. You know, repetitive yeah. traumatic experiences with flying insects. True story. You couldn't walk to, that year. You couldn't walk to your mailbox without stepping on, like, probably like 20 or 30 yeah, on the way there and back. Right? And you have people cook them, right? Like, yeah. Wait, 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 did your chef come out uh, during the cicada research, or? I I actually not during that, but that the the mass emergence in 2004. I actually ate a couple. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Just smothered them in chocolate and then <laughs> ate them. It tastes like got some extra protein like? though. So. It was just crunchy. It didn't really have much taste to it. I can I can imagine why people probably subsisted off of them. Yeah, I mean, there's like. There are a lot of cool, you know, not eating insects is definitely a Western European, Western society thing. Like, so many people all around the world, whether it's South American, Central American, African, Asian, they all have insects as part of their cultural diet. diet, And you know, us Westerners might need to get used to that, given the the food crisis that's going on right now. With, uh, have you heard about, like, cricket protein powders? Yeah, yeah. Did you ever eat crickets or, like, mealworms? I have not. They sell those at the store. You can go get crickets, salted crickets or cheddar mealworms. Nah, you can check much, it out. How much is that at Whole Foods? Is that, like, 90 bucks a crate of uh, salted crickets? 90 bucks a crate of salted crickets. That sounds about right. <laughs> I'm sure. So, in the cicada research, uh, you were looking, or not you specifically, but your research group, you guys were looking to describe a new species of cicada that hadn't been uh, scientifically described yet. Yeah. Uh, not ne- not a s- new species, but just a new brood of 13-year cicadas. There oh, are two, okay. the 13 and the 17, and there was some um, confusion, some arguments going on around whether or not this population was 13 years or 17 years. And so in 2013, we described 2014 we collected them and then i think it was in 2015 that my advisor 
published the study that definitively said these are 13-year cicadas. So, so that is, so instead of like to to just to repeat and clarify, normally or common perception is that there's 14-year and 17-year, right? 13-year, 13-year, but 13 and 17. 13 and 17. So this was yeah. just this was a new population of 13-year cicadas. Yeah, the, in the cicada world, they call them broods, but it's just yeah. another population, yes. That's awesome. So you can only study them, like, once every 13 years, so it's <laughs> kind of like one of those, is that right? Yeah, you can only study them once every 13 or 17 years. You're a little less lucky if you're a 17-year cicada person than you are if you're a 13-year cicada person. <laughs> Get a couple more in. Oh, I don't know. I, just, I think that'd be, like, prestige, right? Especially. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It just takes a long time to figure stuff out. <laughs> we got plenty of time till you gotta submit more grants. Um, so after you guys officially came up with that, uh, what, did you study anything else in undergrad? Um, I did some more cicada research, and then I did a little side project on cone snails, okay. um, and then I did. The, I studied the effects of uh, weather on honeybee behavior, and then I also looked at some research. This is like my undergraduate thesis was um, the effects of fungicide on bee bread in honeybee hives. Ooh, all right. Uh, so I don't know what you want to <laughs> dissect here or talk about, but I'll leave that up to you. I mean, uh, those are all really interesting. We can, I think we can touch at least like a sentence on uh, all three of those before we get to our main topic. So... Cone snails, right, those are saltwater predatory snails, are they not? Yeah, if you want to see some really cool videos, go on that Geo and, and look them up. They're pretty, they're pretty wicked. And they have, with, sorry? With the, the, the amount of venom, they could kill somebody if, if it was the right person, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. I think they're one of the most like uh, effective venoms on the planet, are they not? Uh, most definitely, yeah. I would, I would put them up with stonefish. As far as venom goes, right. Stonefish are the most venomous, really, fish on the planet. Yes. That's. I, I just wanted to make sure we dropped uh, the cone snails in there because people are like cone snails. What's a cone? Nobody cares about cones. <laughs> no, YouTube it. All right, they got like a, a stinger thing that comes out and just whoop, <laughs> and venomates, kills, and then they just they're like, oh, I'm a snail. I'm gonna eat it. So that's yeah, how just bolt yeah. it in. <laughs> I wouldn't expect expect that from a snail. That's that's pretty wild. <laughs> and then uh, you did honeybee and weather interactions. Yeah, so, so that was not as exciting as it sounds. I would sit outside for fifteen minutes every hour for an entire day, three times a week, and just count the number of bees going in and the number of bees going out with a little clicker and record, <laughs> and then hope that there would be a day that there would be a storm and go count all there. <laughs> while the storms were coming in to see if we were trying to correlate changes in atmospheric pressure, precipitation, um, temperature, if any of those correlated with mass movement of bees into the hive rather than bees going out. Right. Just to see if it had any effect on whether or not they were out foraging. Because believe it or not, a raindrop could actually kill a honeybee really? or any bee. Yeah. If it hits in like perfect shot. Yep. Yeah, bees, wow. bees are pretty moody too when it comes to like temperature and and time. I don't or if know. You touch them. <laughs> yeah, or if you touch them. Uh, I mean, there's bees, a story behind that. I've I've actually seen that. This is you know topic for another episode probably. Uh, we gotta get 
things clipping along here, but <laughs> I have seen a honeybee purposefully drown another honeybee. It was really? like from two different hives, they landed on the same bird well, bath. Hive, hive rivalry? Yeah, dude. <laughs> Gang wars. They, <laughs> basically, because they're competitors. And so that one, they both landed on the same bird bath and they're like, you know, drinking water. And then the one just kind of like lifts off, backs up, hovers like horizontally, and then pushes the other one in the water and flew away. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. So I this say. This is a bird bath <laughs> or like a bottle cap? Is this a bird bath or a blood bath? I don't know. <laughs> so I saved the other bee. But anyway. <laughs> and then finally, we had uh, bee bread. And fungicides. Okay. Yes. So, believe it or not, most honeybee hives, commercial hives, and a lot of uh, hobbyists, their hives are actually contaminated with fungicide in the wax foundation that's laid in there because a lot of the commercial hives are just created from the hives that have died. So they just take the wax and they melt it down and create the new foundation in the brand new hives and then sell them to people. And so within the foundation, there's already fungicide in it. And believe it or not, honeybees actually rely on fungi in the form of yeasts to ferment the pollen that they bring back to their hive, which fermented pollen, also known as bee bread, is a huge source of nutrition. It's a protein source for the worker bees, the queen, and for – it's actually made into – Chris, you'll have to help me out. I forget what they make the queens. It's a special thing that the queen eats. See, I'm not a honeybee man. I'm uh, okay. I'm a... Well, they make a special mix of honey and bee bread, and they feed it to the queen. Yeah, the court, the, queen's... the court of bees. Is it the queen's nectar? Or I think that's some, some weird. Mm, I don't think that's it. I, I oh, know no. there is a term for it. You're right, but I, I don't. I can't know remember what it. What it is. But this is for non-scientists, so <laughs> that is the gist of what it is. It's honey and pollen mixed together, and then they give it to them. Yeah. But the fermented pollen just makes it more nutritious, more nutritious and bioavailable, kind of like the bacteria in our guts make the food that we eat more bioavailable to our body, so it breaks it down in ways that our stomach and digestion can't on its own. Absolutely. And this this was probably uh, something that could be considered like a teaser for a further episode because bees, although that's not what I work on currently, are a passion of mine. And uh, they're fascinating, you know, and I, I think Taggy, Sam, Sam can attest to that. Uh, so, our I'm not main... trying to plug, but I would love to talk about bees. Oh, well, then we'll have to have a we'll have to have a bee round table and get some uh, some of my bee friends on here. Yeah, let's do this. Have a, <laughs> see a couple guys on <laughs> or just or just have Sam back. Oh yeah, well, no, hold on, we gotta have inclusive community. (laughs) So our main topic of discussion today, something that's probably gonna blow people away, chameleon communication. That's it. How did you get into this, first of all? So, as with most things for me, I kind of just fell into it. I, um... I actually applied to a PhD program for coral reef ecology out in California. Realized I didn't get in on mid-April, and then I kind of was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do for years, so I'll just email some people. And so my fiance went to Western Kentucky University, where I ended up going, and she was like, I had this professor. It's really cool. He's doing some cool research with fish. And so I was like, oh, I like fish. 
I'll email the guy. And so I sent him an email. Hey, I know it's super late, but here's my stuff. If you have any openings, let me know. Um, that next morning, this is like 1 a.m. And then <laughs> seven hours later, I got a phone call from this really deep voice guy. And he said, hi, is this Sam? And I said, yeah, who's this? And he said, well, see your email here. And if you're, if you're serious about this, uh, I just had somebody who dropped out last week. They were supposed to come to my lab. I had a project set up for them. So I got an opening if you want it. Went down and visited two days later, had my application in, and then I was accepted a week after that. <laughs> Didn't really have a project. The project that the girl um, bailed on was the Chameleon Communication Project, but I wasn't really wanting to do that. I was thinking I want to do something with fish and conservation, but we had some more talks, and it was a fully funded project, and so it's just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Chameleons are kind of cool. I guess I could do this, and so I just sort of dove headfirst into it and just immersed myself in chameleons and that's how it all started so so you awesome. became you became a full member of the chameleon project yeah yes yes i was fully initiated into the chameleon project that's we won't go into any of the the and details about the initiation into the actual cult but <laughs> it i was would uh, guess exhilarating it wearing some camel camel clothes <laughs> and like well i don't really well, get too in detail here we'll can talk about that as a topic within this because that's a common misconception my friend so <laughs> sam uh, yes. could you could you lay down some kind of general information about chameleons just set the stage about uh, the organisms that we're going to be talking about okay so there are about 200 species of chameleons that have been described so far uh they range their range is southern africa madagascar to the middle east and parts of southern europe if you see a chameleon in the united states and florida or hawaii <laughs> it is not native to those areas it was introduced via the pet trade and that's the reason that you see them uh chameleons you... what was that uh sorry to interject but if you don't see them <laughs> There's, there's still there. might be there. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the worst jokes I've ever heard. Uh, I didn't hear you say it, but sorry about that. Continue. Right. Where was I? Okay, you said so, uh, 200 species. and then uh, Yeah, there's about 200 <laughs> species. They range in, from southern Europe to South Africa and into the Middle East. Um, a lot of them have these casks on the top of their heads, so these giant crown-looking things. There are, there's not really a definitive case for exactly what they're used for, and it might not even be just one thing. Some of them use it to funnel water to their mouth. Some of it is used in sexual selection, so it's deemed um, attractive to their mates, and so they use it to attract mates. Uh, yeah. Some people think that it might be used as a way of gathering heat, solar radiation. Um, they can change color, and this is... They do change color not for camouflage, but to communicate to one another. And so people yeah. often think that chameleons go into a tree and then they change colors to sort of blend in with the tree, but that's just a um, an artifact or evolution. Coincidence, right? They, they, yeah, they, they evolved in these green habitats, and so they just became really good at living in a cryptic state. Cryptic as, in, as like hidden, right? Yeah, they, they're just very good at hiding. It's not that they change their color to match their environment. Wow. 
Right, and they even have motion patterns when they're walking that kind of simulates like uh, uh, a leaf in the breeze or a twig in the breeze, right? Really? Yes, yes, yes. So if you just some people that have chameleons for pets can see them swaying on their their little branch, even though there's no leaves in their in their cage. It's just swaying there, and that's just a behavior that they do naturally because they're trying to mimic the leaves swaying back and forth. So you. Wow. Can- you mentioned chameleons uh, use their color change as communication, so that that means they can change the color just on on will, pretty much. It's not influenced by the environment they're in at, at whatsoever. Exactly. They have these they have these uh, melanophores, which are little cells that have pigmentation inside of them, and they can constrict them to make them tighter, which can change the color as the light reflects off of them, or they can relax them, which makes them bigger, and the light reflected is a different color. They also have crystals in their skin that also refracts light, and then if they move their skin or contract, it'll change the amount of that crystal that is being shown and the light reflected off, and that can change their color as well. Wow. That's very cool. That's pretty cool, yeah. Crystals, like, when the light goes through a crystal, it kind of refracts, is that the right word, the the rainbow? Yes. So, yeah, it refracts it. So they can pretty much like control what colors they're putting out through that, right? Exactly. And so these crystals actually lie underneath the melanophores that I was talking about before. So you could have light shining through, and it is a different color of light that shines into the crystal, and then it bounces out. So you get these wide variations of colors just on the because of the way that the two layers of their skin sit on top of each other. And uh, on top of that, chameleons, there's evidence that they can see uh, ultraviolet radiation. And so uh, if you put a lot of chameleons under a black light, they'll actually glow. (laughs) Especially their common name are the ground-dwelling chameleons. They're often found in Madagascar. Um, They're really tiny, but if you shine it up, they have armor. It looks like armor, but it's just mimicking dead leaves. And it's outlined in this blue UV radiation or UV light. If you shine on there, it's just outlined where the other chameleons would see it. That's so it's awesome. really a wild adaptation, and we we believe that that is also a form of communication. But there's yeah. no, there's not a ton of research into that topic. So chameleons uh, sounds like they can communicate through uh, changing changing the colors. Uh, can do they communicate in any other way besides, yes, besides that? Yes. That, that, well, we're not certain. The topic of my research was to look at, so I guess we should take a step back a little bit. So <laughs> there's, there's one paper that describes chameleons communicating back and forth via substrate vibrations. So these are vibrations that go through tree branches or the ground. In this case, it was through tree branches that the study the study was looking at, and the males were placed in the presence of females, and they would vibrate back and forth between one another. And then, when you put a male and a male on the tree branch, they would vibrate back and forth between one another. And so that was the first line of evidence. That was back in 1999 that chameleons could use possibly use vibration as a means of communicating. Good year. Yeah, 1999. Man, can we just go back to the 90s? Please, please, dear God. <laughs> so that's not happening, guys. So, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt the whole flow there. So. Oh, no, it's wonderful, the 90s. Yeah. 
So that study was sort of the precursor, flash forward 14 years. No, I guess it would be longer than that. It would be 17 years. Oh, the whole like lifespan of a cicada. That's anyway, say you're trapped on the cicada thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and starting my first year, my master's program at Western Kentucky University, and my project is looking at the muscles that we think produce these vibrations. And so, I spent a long time just researching basic biology about chameleons, and then really diving into other animals that use vibrations to communicate, such as. Elephants, I think you've had an elephant guy on here already, so elephants yeah. can communicate via vibrations too, not just chemical communication that he was talking about. Um, we have a specialist, all right? He's a specialist. Yeah. So I like, was just, <laughs> just trying to help. <laughs> like infrasound, right? Yeah, yeah. They vibrate through the ground and then pick it up in their feet. How, how much information, uh, I don't know, don't know if you, you can talk about this or... Or what? But how much information is like is passed through the vibrations? Is just like weather change? Like there's a there's a mate over here. My base, my vibrations are better than this other community's <laughs> vibrations. Is that how it works? Or is there like a lot of information? Like uh, we're not sure. I idealistically we would we would like it to be like a, a language. That would be really cool if you found another yeah. animal, a reptile that could communicate as maybe as a complex a way of communication as it gets i guess yeah um but we we really have no idea what the signals are that are being passed back and forth the fact that they do them male to female uh may indicate that it could be used in a courtship context so it might be like ooh, good vibrations yeah yeah or (laughs) good vibes a bigger bigger male yeah (laughs) A bigger male might be able to vibrate at a different frequency or amplitude than the smaller chameleons, and that might be deemed as attractive to a female, and so she may prefer a larger male to a smaller male because of that, or conversely, it might be that she prefers a smaller male to a larger male. We have no idea. These are all just hypotheses that we would like to test in the future. Mm -hmm. But my project was just... How how are they making these vibrations? Because nobody's been able to figure out exactly how they're doing this. So, but it has been clarified that making these vibrations is like an active choice, right? It's like a response to a stimulus, and then they make vibrations. Correct? Yes. So there's this. There are species of chameleons in Madagascar, the same ones that glow under black light. They also, if you pick them up. Researchers have picked them up. I actually have one right next to me. And if you pick them up and scare them, it sort of startles them. They'll actually do a whole body vibration. Mm. And so that's sort of hypothesized to be an anti-predator mechanism. Pick something up and it vibrates. You sort of get weirded out and you drop it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so for the veiled chameleons, those are the chameleons that we were looking at. Those are the most common chameleons in the pet trade. So if you seen a chameleon at somebody's house it's more than likely a veiled chameleon and we we think that they are responding to a stimulus in my study we we prodded them scared them a little bit by poking (laughs) them and they elicited a vibration every time we did that now is that because uh they they've evolved that as a anti-predator mechanism and they'll just do that every time you poke them and they won't do it in any other context, 
we don't know that for sure. We have yeah. the one study in 1999 that they didn't do that. They just put them in the same room with each other on a branch together, and they vibrated back and forth. Can and, you talk about uh, like how you measure this vibration? Like, is it a certain like like frequency? And then do you keep track of like, frequencies that they vibrate at? Or yeah, yeah. That... So I can uh, I can walk sort of walk you through the basics of what we did. We um. We had to do surgery on the chameleons, so we anesthetized them, and then we we um, opened up their necks, and we inserted electrodes, which mm-hmm. are wires that are about the width of your hair. So if you feel your hair, it's about how wide they were. Yeah. And you make them into an arrow shape, and then you put them into the muscles that you think you want to test. It's called electromyography, so the electrodes will pick up any electro- electrical activity in the muscles, which is how they contract. So if we're picking up electrical activity, that means the muscle is contracting. Yeah. Okay, so that was hooked up to a data acquisition board, and we were able to record that. So we picked four different muscles in the throat, uh, sewed them back up, let them recover, and then we put them on a dowel. And on the dowel, it's just a one-inch wooden dowel, we had an accelerometer. This is a um, a machine, not a machine, a tool that can detect vibrations. It's often used in the construction industry to put it on buildings to see how a vibration across the ground could affect the stability of the building or how much vibration reaches up how high on the building. But we just took advantage of that. We placed it actually on the top of the chameleon's cask using beeswax to hold it in place. (laughs) Bees, again. Very innovative. I'm just like bringing it all together. (laughs) All your research came to the pinnacle right here. Yes. Not, not <laughs> Literally really, not the really pinnacle really. of the chameleon, too. <laughs> yes, the very top. And so then we, we put yeah. them on the dowel, and we took a piece of plastic and just kind of poked them in the arm, and that would scare them. And we realized that every time we did that, they would produce a vibration. And so the point of my project was not to determine if they use it in a communicative context or not and what what the vibration means. My project was simply to describe which muscles produce the vibration. Right. And so when we poked them, the muscles that were contracted, if they had an electrode in them, would record the activity in the computer alongside if there was a vibration produced. So the accelerometer would pick up the vibration, the electrodes would pick up the electrical activity, and then on the computer we'd look, oh, they're all happening at the same time. Ding, we got it. Then you know what muscle exactly... Yeah, yeah, so we would labeled each electrode and then labeled it on the screen so we would know, okay, at this time, this muscle was moving, at this time, this muscle was moving, at this time, this muscle was moving. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, so it was pretty meticulous, and it was pretty awesome, to say the least, to see (laughs) that, because I had so many classmates that their projects didn't exactly work out, and... They would all, a lot of people were like, man, this is so stressful. It's just like you never know if it's going to work, and mine actually worked. Yeah. So it that sounds was, like you enjoyed it, too, along the way. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. I got to live in South Dakota for a month and then yeah. sort of explore there while also doing my research. That was a bonus to being in the lab. I want to I wanna clarify that I'm like the biggest bleeding heart for animals there is, and <laughs> their research pretty much met my standards for uh for acceptability so like minimal harm was done to chameleons in inserting these electrodes and and that kind of stuff they were pretty much unfazed by it right yeah yeah they had they were absolutely they acted completely the same after 
they recovered from the surgery and the incision wasn't very large since their skin is so um saggy they have a lot of it because they can puff up and make themselves look really big so they have a lot of saggy skin so you really only make a little incision then you can move the skin up and then move the skin down and we even had some that accidentally pulled the electrodes out and they didn't even it didn't even phase them (laughs) yeah don't even care no, so, they didn't. They just yeah. didn't care. That meets the seal seal of approval there. Yeah, it sounds very. Electrode very is just a scary word that I think we need to make pe- make sure people are not worried about. Yeah, it's not that scary. Like. <laughs> no, it's it's actually just if you think about it, just the width of your hair, and it's just sort of slid into the muscle. It's not like we were jabbing it in there and hoping that it went in. <laughs> Does the electrode have anything to do with med- with uh with the nerve in? With the, with the nerves inside the, of the muscle, if they're even, inside, I'm not, I'm no anatomy expert, but <laughs> yeah, so that's how. So whenever the the nerve that innervates that muscle would would activate, it would send electricity through the, the muscle. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And, so, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. Were you gonna say something? No, I was just gonna say, and then the actin and myosin attach, and then they contract, and then it just stays there until it's done contracting, and then everything goes back to normal. But. Right. That's a little extra information that you don't really need. <laughs> Very interesting. Though. So you did you did establish which muscles do uh, produce these vibrations, correct? Yes. However, we only tested a small subset of the muscles in the area, and right. so further studies would look to see if there are other smaller muscles maybe involved because we picked the largest muscles in the area because, like, okay, that would make sense that those would be responsible. So now maybe smaller muscles give a little bit more information or they change the, um, the quality of the vibration or the, the style. They're getting jiggy with it. I don't know. (laughs) Absolutely. That that makes sense. Cause like usually when this, when a small muscle is involved in like a movement, there's usually a bigger muscle that is also working in that conjunction with it exactly yeah and so we died essentially my research was a pilot project that worked out really well and we got a lot of good data and so we just want to build on top of that i can't speak to specifics because we haven't published yet but we're getting close so Absolutely. stay tuned we'll have yeah. to have you back on when, uh, <laughs> when you guys publish it so we yeah. can talk about your your findings now as the man who has conquered the apex pinnacle of the chameleon cask, where do you find yourself going next? What do you want to do next? I don't really know. That's a really good question. Um, I'm sort of diving into some project right now. I'm about to start a blog. I haven't written anything yet. It's supposed to writing is supposed to start tomorrow, and I don't know exactly what I'm going to write about, but it's going to be something. Psycom? No. Yes. Yes. Heck yeah. Yes. And I'm also, I just finished reading a book that I'm going to write a review about for the American Entomological Society. It's called First First and Fly. It was about Drosophila and all of its uses in fruit fly genetics and how that's influenced our knowledge about human genetics. You should uh, should send that to Dane. Send your review. I I will send it to him. He'll need it. Do you, do you have a, uh, a domain name for your blog yet? No, not yet. I want to start. I want to get some stuff written before I. Yeah. 
I start. So that would have been a really good plug-in for, for my blog, but well, yeah, once, I you, once you get it figured out and written, we'll plug you. We'll plug you. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll put it in the yeah. description. We'll hit it up. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the man, the myth, the biggest overachiever I know, uh, Sam Tagge's working hard even on downtime because downtime's important, and you know you don't always know what you're gonna do. You don't always know where your life is going, but you got to take advantage to whatever opportunities you have. And if there are no opportunities at the moment, you make your own opportunities, and that's yep. what this man is doing here. Writing a blog, writing reviews, staying productive. Yeah. Being yeah, productive, going flow. Using his brain, that's important. You just got to keep it going. No matter what you do, just stay at it. And I mean, you never know. I didn't expect to be wanting to get my master's or that I would even do it a couple years ago, but I did it and That was awesome. So <laughs> you guys can do it too. Everybody can do it as long as they have the, the passion and the work ethic. Oh yeah. Without it, it it's kind of a miserable process if you don't have <laughs> any passion or drive to do it. <laughs> or a work ethic. Yeah. yeah. Goodness gracious. All right, well, do you have any closing messages? Or if you don't have any yourself, could you maybe tell us why you think it's important people understand uh, vibrational communication in general as well as in chameleons and how you think that might be put to use in the future? So I think it's important to understand how animals communicate so that we can better conserve them. A really good example is that for a really long time we didn't know the way that whales communicate and how much our machinery in the ocean is affecting them. And now they're on some species are on the verge of extinction. And a lot of it is due to the fact that we didn't understand that just our boats make noises that affect the communication of these whales and they may not be able to find each other but just simply because we have boats going through the water so that's a sort of a broad way to look at it that we need to understand how animals communicate so that we can understand how to better live coexist with them uh, specifically in chameleons um, first of all it's just really cool there's no other um, chameleon that produces anything like this and so this is the first example of vibrational communication in a reptile. So coolness factor, number one. Number two, um, a lot of the chameleon, a num number of the chameleon species are endangered and at risk of going extinct. And so if this is far, maybe vibrations from the cars or just a jackhammer building a road or something is affecting their ability to survive we need to be cognizant of that fact and maybe take that into account when we're deciding to build roads here or to do other modifications to an environment absolutely That's i think those are point. yeah those are fantastic ideas uh i'm all about coexistence and, and conservation biology over here so yeah i'm talking yeah. to the right man <laughs> Max, do you have anything uh, you want to say, put out there? Um, well, first of all, I think chameleons are really, really cool. I, I want to have my own chameleon. 
<laughs> so it's uh, been pretty awesome having you on here and hearing about all the stuff. Quick side note. You mentioned earlier that you have a chameleon. He has two. He has two chameleons. Is that, is that true? Yes, yes, that is absolutely true. Are they your pets? Yes, are they are they... my pets. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> are they good pets? They're good pets. They, you, they don't really require much care. Um, you just got to make sure that you spray them. So you have to spray them. They don't. If you put a pool of water in there, they don't really go and lap it up with their tongue. Mm-hmm. They just they f- use water droplets on leaves or funnel the water to their mouth, and so you've got to spray them every day. Um, and then just toss okay. some crickets in every other day. And do they, do, uh, sorry, do they eat anything other uh, besides crickets? Um, the chameleons I have, they could eat uh, any number of insects, but crickets are just the most available at the pet store that I buy. Some chameleons have, are large enough, and they've been documented to eat uh, small mammals and other reptiles, so wow. beware of the large chameleons. Hide your kids, hide your... <laughs> they snatching everybody out here. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, well, thank you so much for coming on. You were a great interviewee. Um, I'd like to thank my, my team over here, my co-host, Randall. Thanks. I'd like to thank Max for producing this episode. For sure. Like to, again, we're going to shout out Rusty for making our logo and our, our photos uh, for the podcast. And then also, the man upstairs, the man with the piano. <laughs> Who is that? Justin. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> he's going to... Our music man. One day he's going to finish our intro. <laughs> he's going to finish the intro and the outro. It's going to be great. All well, right. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's been a real treat talking about biology with you all. Yeah, we hope you had a good time. We hope you uh, enjoyed your experience and didn't work like, oh my god, this is a sham. Uh, <laughs> We're having you back on to talk about bees. Yeah, yeah about I'm bees. coming back to talk about bees. So yeah, or, or chameleons. Yeah. When you <laughs> I hope your published. listeners aren't tired of me. No, no, just no. yet. Well, if they are, it's too bad. All right, <laughs> talk to you soon. Get new listeners. <laughs> See ya. See ya.